0: hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 9 verses 18 through 26. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I may be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping." And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever." Uh, The week before last, uh, the panhandle of western Nebraska received two feet of snow. We've all had this uh, terrible cold, but uh, last week they had to deal with about two feet of snow. Um, I'm originally from that area. I kind of keep my eye out anytime something happens out there. Uh, My father, who also grew up in that area, remembers a similar snowstorm. He's told me about it before. Uh, That happened when he was in high school in the 1970s. Uh, where the Panhandle also received about two feet of snow, but it was in March of that year, and it was a very heavy wet snow. It was such a significant snowstorm uh, that started snowing one day, and then the next day it took the entire day for the emergency workers to to clear all the roads and to make it safe for travel and so it wasn't until the day after that where his father, my grandfather, uh, who was a bus driver at the time, got permission to take his bus and to go out into the highways and byways and to try to find. Uh, stranded desperate uh, travelers who, who had been left and and, and and stranded on the side of the road by this incredible snowstorm that fell and so that day my father went with my grandfather and they picked up people and brought them back into town uh, where they had a place to go to get warm and to get food and other things they needed uh, while they were covered and, and prepared to go on their way well on a, on a later trip a later route uh, through that day so again at the very end of this day uh, my grandfather came across an entire bus a, a greyhound bus, Uh, full of people that had been stranded all this time for about two days. And and they were very weary, um, and these people had clearly become extremely desperate about their situation. So desperate that they had actually begun to tear the bus apart. They had torn the, the padding off of the seats and had put it in the back of the bus to burn it, to start a fire to keep themselves warm in the back of the bus. It never in my life has it crossed my mind to tear a bus apart. Never in my life have I wondered, uh, boy, would these uh, seat cushions work well as fuel for a fire if I needed to stay warm? But they were at that stage of desperation. Desperation drives us to do the kinds of things that we wouldn't otherwise think to do. And these people were very, very desperate by the time my grandfather came across them to bring them back uh, to safety. When we come to the story today... We see three people who are clearly in dire straits. They are absolutely desperate when they encounter Jesus. You know, last night we celebrated and remembered the event of Christmas, where we heard the stories and the Bible readings about the birth of Jesus, the incarnation and birth of Jesus into this world to be the Savior of the world. Well, this morning, the sermon text is not so much about the event of the incarnation, the event of Christmas, but nevertheless, this morning, we are seeing a passage that very clearly spells out the significance of Christmas, the significance of why Jesus had to be born and to become a human being, a a man like us in every respect, yet without sin. And so as we look at this story of three desperate people encountering Jesus, our big idea is this, that Jesus came to save desperate people. Jesus came to save desperate people. So there are sort of three scenes to this story, and so we'll uh, look at these scenes individually. First, we're going to see that Jesus saves the humbled. Jesus saves the humbled. Then second, Jesus saves the hopeless. Jesus saves the hopeless. And then third, Jesus saves the helpless. Now again, um, as we consider this particular text that's about the significance of Christmas, don't worry, uh, stay with me. Uh, We are going to look at uh, several different aspects that deal with the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, uh, as we go along. So stay with me on this. So in this first section in verses 18 and 19, we see that Jesus saves the humbled. In verse 18, we read, while he, Jesus, was saying these things to them. So Matthew is telling us this ties directly to the story that we looked at last week, where Jesus was talking with the disciples of John who came and asked him a question about fasting. They said, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Back in verse 14, just up the page. So it was right in the middle of this conversation as Jesus is answering this question that Jesus is interrupted from continuing further on this conversation. Jesus, as we look at the story of his life, he is constantly interrupted. Everywhere he goes, he is being interrupted. And here he is interrupted by a man whom Matthew describes as a ruler. Now, we know from the parallel passages in Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8, where we read the other accounts of this story from the perspectives of the other gospel writers, uh, we know the name of this man. This man was named Jairus. And this man, as a ruler, he was the equivalent of what we would have in our church as a ruling elder. Uh, That's not just a coincidence. In fact, we base the office of ruling elder uh, based on what was happening in the Old Testament church, the Jewish synagogue system, uh, for these rulers. Uh, We find these rulers a a few places in the gospel. For example, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus in the night. In John chapter 3, we find in John chapter 3 verse 1 that he also was a ruler. These rulers, uh, like our ruling elders, oversaw the worship of the synagogues. Now, in our church, ruling elders are highly esteemed. We give them a lot of authority and deference and and respect. Uh, But, of course, if you get beyond the walls of this place, um, sorry to those ruling elders among us, but people probably don't think too highly of the fact that someone would be a ruling elder here at Harvest Community Church or really any office in the church, because outside these walls, uh, the offices in this church are not highly thought of. But think about a society where everything revolved around the centrality of the synagogue where everything happened uh, at that place, where people gathered weekly to worship at that place in the way that we worship here today, these rulers would have been very highly esteemed. They would have had a lot of authority, not just in the walls of the synagogue, but beyond, in the whole community. This is a man of high place, high prestige, high position, high privilege, high authority. And notice the manner in which he comes to Jesus. He comes as a man who is humble by the suffering of his daughter. We read that this ruler came in and knelt before Jesus. Now we know who Jesus is, and he knew something about what Jesus could do for him, but he probably didn't know the whole story that we celebrate every Christmas, uh, that this Jesus was truly God and truly man. So when he kneels before him, it's unclear what exactly he was doing and what exactly he knew. This word for kneeling could refer to an act of worship, but probably adhere here. Just refers to some kind of uh, act of respect, the, the thing, what you might do before someone who had more authority than you. This ruler acknowledges the authority of Jesus as he comes before him. And he comes, even though he has, has an incredibly high role in his community, he comes and, and kneels before Jesus to show his respect to this teacher, whoever he thought that Jesus would be. And this ruler comes to Jesus and makes an extraordinary request of Jesus. It's extraordinary in two ways. First of all, It's extraordinary because he says to Jesus, my daughter has just died. He's asking Jesus to restore his daughter to life. Now, Jesus has done great miracles. He's healed people in various ways. He's calmed a storm. He's driven out demons. But he has never quite raised someone from the dead, at least not yet. It's an extraordinary thing for for him to ask Jesus to do this. The second way in which this request is extraordinary… It's because he asks Jesus to lay his hand, to come with him so that Jesus can lay his hand on her, on the daughter. Now, the reason this is so extraordinary is because what we've talked about in a few places that we've studied what Jesus is doing is the Old Testament ceremonial law made it very clear that to touch whatever would be, was unclean would make the one who touched that unclean person or thing themselves unclean. The ceremonial law prohibited touching what was unclean. And chief among what was unclean, in fact, sort of the the, the paradigm, the main example you would think of, what was characteristically unclean was death. Death made someone unclean. And so this little girl was unclean because she was dead. And so her father was asking Jesus to come touch someone who was unclean. This was a threat to his purity, to his cleanness. Now, it's interesting to compare what this ruler asks of Jesus compared with the centurion that we saw a few weeks ago earlier in Matthew chapter 8. Jairus, this ruler, is a high official in the Jewish church, in the synagogue, whereas the centurion was a high-ranking Gentile military official. But more than that, second of all, uh, Jairus asked Jesus to come with him, whereas the centurion stopped Jesus from coming with him. The centurion knew it would, be, it would make Jesus unclean if he came into the house of a Gentile. So the centurion said, you don't need to come. You can just say the word and I know that my servant will be healed. Whereas this man, this ruler, wants Jesus to come so explicitly so that Jesus can touch his dead daughter to bring her to life. So this man believes in some respect that Jesus can help him even though his daughter has just died. But when we compare Jairus with the centurion, we're meant to understand that Jairus had, or the centurion had the stronger faith, The Jairus had the weaker faith. The centurion thought that he could do it from afar. Jesus praised the faith of the centurion. Not in all Israel have I found such faith as this uh, Gentile centurion. But nevertheless, Jairus does make the request. Why does he make the request? If he has weaker faith that really wants to make sure that Jesus can do the job by asking Jesus to come so that he can see Jesus, see it through... What leads Jairus to do it? Well, the answer is very clear. Jairus is desperate. He's desperate. Where else is he going to turn? To whom else is he going to go? And he's desperate also because it's unclear how Jesus will respond. Jesus is under no obligation to help. Remember, this man is just bursting in, interrupting this conversation. Not the best way to start a request for help, to interrupt someone who can help you. But remember, as a ruler, this would have been one of the Jewish religious leaders. If you're at all familiar with the story of the Gospels, you know that the religious leaders did not get along well with Jesus. In fact, they were enemies. These religious leaders are going to be the ones who are going to instigate the crowd to chant crucify Him on the day when Jesus would be condemned and sentenced to death. How then will Jesus respond when one of His enemies comes to ask him for help. And the response here, the response of Jesus underscores the great compassion of Jesus. Where it was maybe unclear how Jesus would respond, we see exactly how Jesus responds in verse 19 when we read that Jesus rose and followed him. Now, this could mean that Jesus was seated or that he was reclining at table and so he had to physically get up to go. Or, as some commentators point out, the way this Greek is written, uh, could refer to what we say in English as something like, he up and went, he up and followed. It, it, it underscores the, the immediacy that he rushed out to help, to help this little girl who had died. What's also extraordinary that really underscores Jesus' compassion is where it says that Jesus rose and followed him. The word followed shows up many times in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the only time that Jesus is the one following someone else. Every other time the word follow is used in the Gospel of Matthew, it is always used to describe other people following Jesus. Either that Jesus tells them to follow him, or that they are following him. But here, Jesus follows this man to go help. Jesus jumps at the request to save this desperate man's daughter. The key question that this first scene unfolds for us is, will Jesus help when he doesn't have to? Will Jesus help when he is under no obligation to? Will Jesus help when an enemy comes to ask him for this help? The Bible says that we were enemies of God, but that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for sinners. And we're seeing the beginnings of this here in this story. But before Jesus can help this girl, he is once again interrupted. Just as Jesus was interrupted with his conversation with John's disciples, so another desperate daughter comes to seek Jesus' help. And in this next scene, we meet this woman who has been hopeless for 12 years. And the question is, can Jesus save even her? So in the second scene, the second section, we see that Jesus saves the hopeless. Notice in verse 20, we read, and behold. This is the same word we read in verse 18, behold. It's, it's sort of, oh, look at that. Uh, you sort of, it's sort of a word that describes something. Oh, there she comes. Look at this. Look at what's happening, a sudden arrival. And again, we have to note how frequently Jesus is interrupted. It's not just in this story. It's all over the Gospels. Jesus is regularly, frequently interrupted, and yet how graciously He responds. One commentator, William Hendrickson, observes this and points this out. He says, what we would call an interruption is for him a springboard or a takeoff point for the utterance of a great saying or as here for the performance of a marvelous deed revealing his power, his wisdom, and his love. What for us would have been a painful exigency, a painful delay, is for him a golden opportunity. Well, this woman... That encounters Jesus, that interrupts Jesus, we read, had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, the law made very clear in Leviticus 15 uh, that bodily discharges for both men and women made them unclean, which means that this woman had been ceremonially perpetually unclean for 12 years. Now, she would not have been quite in the status of a leper. She didn't have to remain outside the city. She didn't have to shout unclean as people approached her. But nevertheless, this would have been an absolutely humiliating, degrading experience. And after all these 12 years, she had not found a solution. This woman was hopeless. And yet, hearing about what Jesus had done for other people must have sparked some hope in this hopeless woman. Maybe Jesus can help me too. Now, for this woman to seek help from Jesus came at some considerable risk to Jesus, and she must have known about it. See, her condition was addressed specifically in Leviticus 15, verses 25 through 30, where it talks about a woman with this kind of a discharge. And immediately after this, in Leviticus 15, verse 31, we read this, thus, by the law that told her that she was unclean, thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. The reason that God had established these holiness laws, these laws of what was clean and what was unclean, to separate the clean and the unclean, was particularly so that God's tabernacle, the tabernacle was the mobile tent form of what later became uh, built into a physical structure of the temple. It was to keep God's tabernacle and then later God's temple clean from the defilements and the impurities of God's people. And the holiness and the purity of the tabernacle in the temple was a, was a fragile holiness, a fragile cleanness, so that it was liable to corruptions, liable to defilements, if it was made unclean by God's people. And that's why God had to separate the unclean so that they would not pollute the tabernacle. Now, if you're paying attention, if you're playing from home, playing along at home, this is one of the first major instances where we see a Christmas theme arising in this story. Because even as we read last night in John 1 verse 14 at Christmas, we celebrate the fact that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Word is that He tabernacled among us. Jesus is where the presence of God pitched His tent in our midst in human flesh, veiled in flesh that God had seen as we sing. Jesus, the holy tabernacle of God, understand the law said, that people like this need to be kept away from him, lest his cleanness, lest his purity be defiled. But just as Jesus up and followed the man to go touch an unclean dead girl, so the purity and holiness of Jesus is not enough to stop this woman from touching him. And when he touches this woman, it's not enough uh, for his power to, to, to burst forward and for his holiness to overcome the uncleanness of this woman, not the other way around. He wasn't defiled. Rather, she was cleansed. She was healed from her discharge at that time. Well, how then will Jesus respond? Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the Holy One. How will He respond when He knows that this woman who is unclean has touched Him? And we see that when He turns around and He sees her in verse 22, He says this, Take heart, daughter. He doesn't scold her, how dare you touch me. He says the opposite. He says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Now very literally, this word made well, both here and then back in her own thinking, back in verse 20, if I can just touch him, then I will be made well. Excuse me, yeah, verse 21, if I touch his garment, then I will be made well. Those words there that are translated as made well is very literally, be saved, If I touch his garment, I will be saved. And Jesus says, take heart, daughter, your faith has saved you. Her faith was not a great work that she performed. Her faith was, as one commentator Lenski writes, the hand that received the gift from Jesus. The key question that's surrounding this particular scene is, will Jesus help when there is risk to him? When he is risking being defiled, being made unclean, will Jesus help even when it is risky for him? Uh, You may know the story of a woman named Corrie Ten Boom, uh, a Dutch Christian that when uh, the Nazis invaded the Netherlands, uh, she with her family had a role in helping to hide Jews from the Nazis. It was incredible risk to their family. Eventually, the Ten Boom family was caught. They were discovered for what they had been doing. Uh, The the Gestapo arrested them, and they sent them off to a concentration camp. Now, Corrie Ten Boom survived, but both her father and her sister died in that prison camp. One of the reasons their story is told a lot, and she wrote a book of this uh, called The Hiding Place, a very famous story, one of the things that's underscored is that it's one thing to help when there is very little cost, If you don't need much from me, maybe I'll go out of my way to help you. But it's another thing entirely to help when the cost is great. Now for Jesus, it's not only that he was under no obligation, especially when we're talking about helping his enemy, the ruler who came, the religious leader who came to ask for his help, but it's also that his help would come at great risk. Now even though his purity and holiness is so strong that it cannot be corrupted or defiled by the pollution of this woman, Nevertheless, what he is doing here will eventually require him to go all the way to the cross. Where he is not necessarily harmed here, he's just able to heal. Eventually what he is doing is going to have to be paid in full. The power that he has come to establish, to accomplish, the the kingdom, the forgiveness, the, the fountain of cleansing for these unclean, polluted, guilty people is going to require that he pour out his blood at the cross so that sinners can still to this day look to Him and to be saved by faith in Jesus. Now finally, after this interruption on His way to see a hopeless, or, or to see a helpless girl, uh, this hopeless woman who interrupted uh, the, the, the process, Jesus finally arrives at the home of this helpless girl who was already dead. Now, Jesus here, we might say, well, maybe he has good motives. Can he really, though, raise the dead? And that's exactly what we're going to see in this third section where Jesus saves the helpless. If there's anyone who is more helpless than this little girl, I don't know what it would be. Here she is dead, so dead that in verse 23, when Jesus arrives on the scene, there are flute players and a crowd making a commotion, uh, mourners. Now, this is very common. When someone died, uh, you would bring in musicians and you would bring uh, professional war- mourners as well as the family who would have mourned. Uh, the Jewish Mishnah declared that even the poorest in Israel should not hire less than two flutes and one wailing woman when someone died. It was important to, that, that death was appropriately mourned. It wasn't something they tried to hide. They gave full vent to their frustrations at the dead. And when Jesus comes across this motion, or this commotion... In verse 24, he says, "'Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping.'" Now, when Jesus says this, it's very clear from the response of the people that the girl is, in fact, dead. They laugh at Jesus. That gives confirmation that uh, she's not sleeping in the way that we would think of sleeping. She is, in fact, physically dead. The question, then, is why does Jesus talk about her death as sleeping? Why does he say that she is not dead, but sleeping, if she is, is, in fact, dead? Now, this is the way that Jesus talked sometimes. Uh, probably the clearest example is in when Jesus raised Lazarus in John chapter 11. Uh, when Jesus heard the news that his friend Lazarus had died, he told his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And there again, when Jesus said this, it confused his the disciples. They said, Oh, good, he's just sleeping. If he's sleeping, then he's going to recover. Everything is well. But then in John 11, verse 14, we read that Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died don't mistake the fact that when I told you that he was sleeping that he was just sleeping I meant that he was sleeping in the sense that I go to awaken him but he has in fact died which means that I go to raise him from the dead and that's why Jesus uses this language of sleeping and awakening because even though we can't rouse someone who is dead as though they were merely sleeping This is entirely within Jesus' power. Just like you might uh, wake up a, a sleeping child, something I know something about, who's so asleep, so sleepy, can't get out of bed in the morning. You have to do it a few times. Eventually you can wake that sleeping child. So Jesus has the power to raise the dead. Now notice again the compassion of Jesus. With what he does, we read that when the crowd had been put outside, Jesus went in, verse 25, and took her by the hand. In all of this, Jesus... Could have been hands off. Again, this is a dead girl. This is the height of pollution in ceremonial cleanness is a dead girl. But Jesus goes in, though he could have been hands off, he could have at least put on some medical gloves perhaps, but just as the impurity of the woman with a discharge cannot stop the power of Jesus, cannot defile the holiness of Jesus, so the impurity of this girl's death cannot pollute Jesus one bit. Rather, Jesus' purity, His holiness, is so powerful that it drives away the uncleanness of death altogether. And Jesus raises her from the dead. Why then did Jesus touch her? To show His love for her by drawing near to her in the flesh, to touch her and to heal her. The key question is, will Jesus help when it seems too late to help? There's a tremendous story in 2 Samuel 12 about David after his sin with Bathsheba and the child that was conceived with Bathsheba with whom he committed adultery. And this child is afflicted by the Lord, the Bible says. And this child for seven days is on the edge of death. And during that entire time, David, the child's father, he fasts. He eats nothing. He doesn't get up He doesn't wash himself, he doesn't anoint himself, he just lays flat on the floor. And When people try to bring him food, he refuses to eat anything for seven days, fasting and praying and interceding for the life of his child who is dying. At the end of this time, the child dies and his servants are so afraid to tell him that the child has died, knowing what a big deal it's been while this child has been on the edge of death. How will he respond once the child has died? But David, seeing them, he asks, is the child dead? And they confirm that that's the case. And we read immediately, David arose, he washed, he anointed himself, he changed his clothes, he went to worship in the house of the Lord, he, and he ate food, and they're perplexed by his actions. Why did you react one way while well, the child was living, and another way after the child died, and he explained that he did all he could before it was too late. All he could before the child died. Saying, who knows, perhaps the Lord will be gracious. But after the child dies, he says, the child will not return to me, I will go to the child, but that child will not return to me. Now it is too late. For David, there was nothing left to do. But not for Jesus. For Jesus, when this dead child of the ruler has already gone into a place where it is too late, our our Lord Jesus has the power to raise her from the dead. Will Jesus help when there is nothing more to do, when there's absolutely no earthly way to help? Here we are seeing the significance of Christmas, the significance of the Incarnation. Because here you see God Almighty, the one who alone has power over life and death. That's why Jesus has the power to raise this girl from the dead. But you also see that though God could have boomed a voice from heaven to raise this girl from the dead, we see Jesus as a man in the flesh, showing visible compassion, drawing near to this desperate child, this helpless child in the flesh. So that we, as we look at this story, might be saved through faith in Him. The application for this story then is receive Jesus' salvation by faith. On Christmas morning, we rightfully give special attention to Jesus' incarnation. But it would not be right to think that the significance of Jesus' birth was limited to December any more than it would be right to limit the message of the death and the resurrection of Jesus to the time where we remember Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Rather, Jesus' birth, His life, His death, and His resurrection is always at the center of every Lord's Day when we gather week by week. Because the the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus is the central message of the whole Bible. So while this is not a a Christmas passage, we see here so plainly the reason that Jesus had to take upon himself a human nature so that Jesus in the flesh could, could come near and touch two people. One woman could touch him and he could touch and take by the hand a dead girl. It's this touching, this palpable, this tangible expression of the lavish love of God that John overflows in his amazement and wonder at in 1 John chapter 1, where he's talking about the fact that God Almighty has become flesh. He writes this in 1 John 1. He says, that which was from the beginning. We're talking about God Almighty, the Word who is in the beginning with God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. A privilege that was shared both by this woman with the discharge of blood and this little girl whom... Jesus came close. Jesus took upon himself a human nature so that we could see him, hear him, and touch him. Well, in our story in the Gospel of Matthew here, before this so far, we have seen Jesus demonstrate his authority in many different ways. We've seen Him, his authority to cleanse sinners. We've seen his authority over the, the winds and the waves. We've seen his authority over the, the, the demons, But we're starting here to see His compassion. We saw it a few verses earlier in chapter 9, verse 13, when Jesus declared that He came not to call the righteous, but sinners. But now we see a little bit more of the glimpse of Jesus' compassion. We see it lived out in His response to three desperate people, a humbled father, a hopeless daughter, and a helpless daughter. Jesus responds to their interruptions. Jesus rushes To save them, Jesus reaches out to touch them. Now, our God is too pure and too holy to be in the presence of evil and pollution, but not because He cannot be in their presence lest He be defiled. In fact, only our God is capable to purify the impure, to sanctify the unholy, and to forgive the guilty. And so, on this Christmas morning, we must remember why Jesus came to save desperate, guilty, polluted people like you and like me, the question is, aren't you desperate for what Jesus alone can provide? Are you humbled enough to set aside whatever position, whatever privilege, whatever authority, whatever power you think you have to kneel before the maker of heaven and earth who humbled himself as the greatest servant of all? Are you hopeless enough to recognize that nothing and no one else in this world can save you, can meet you where you are, can meet your deepest needs outside of Jesus Christ, the Lord made flesh? Are you helpless enough to acknowledge that you are dead and your sins and trespasses and that it will require the Lord of life to take upon a human nature so that he can die so that you can live? Gaze upon him in this story. Do you see his compassion For desperate people? In this do you feel his special compassionate love toward you, a sinner? Jesus came to save desperate people. Like me, like you. That's the significance of Christmas. That's why Jesus had to be born in this world. That's what we celebrate this week and every week as we gather Lord's Lords Day by Lord's Day to declare and proclaim all that Jesus Christ born, lived, died, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. All that he has done for us and for our salvation until the day that he comes again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his love and his compassion for his people that we see shown forth so clearly in this passage. Help us, we pray, to love Jesus, to delight in his coming. This morning and every Lord's Day as we gather together, For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.